Welcome to the Max Muth Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. Before we get to the episode, I want to let you know that we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu isms on them. You can get to the store via maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. On today's episode, we discuss six recent theater productions in New York City. Enjoy the show. All right, let's start with introductions, Deep. Uh, hi, I'm Deep Tran, associate editor at American Theater Magazine. And Jose. Jose Solis of Stage Buddy. And Lindsay from Maximo. Okay, we have been to the theater many times. Mm, not all of us have seen every show we're going to talk about. At least two people have seen every show we're going to talk about. And some of us have seen multiple productions of each show we're going to talk about. <laughs> so it's a real like hills and valleys kind of expertise we're bringing to the table today. I could have seen every show that we talked about, but then someone, I had an interview, and then they talked too much, and then I missed the show, which <laughs> happens sometimes. It does happen. Okay, let's start with Duat. Deep. Okay, I feel like my description of the show is going to be similar to other descriptions of other things that we've seen this week, because it's really hard to describe and talk about. So I'm going to even do my best. Uh, I, I, I feel like, and I feel like even describing the show kind of goes against like the meaning of the show, which is like you take your own meaning from it. But what I got from this, so Duat is by Daniel. Daniel Alexander Sh- Jones presented at Soho Rep, uh, by Soho Rep, directed by Will Davis, who I'm, who I'm a big fan of. And it's a play in three parts, a play with music in three parts. Uh, the first part is Daniel in like an afterlife kind of setting. But like Duat is the Egyptian afterlife where they take your heart and they weigh it against a feather. And if, you know, if your heart weighs less than the feather, you get to heaven or something like that. If it weighs more, you're get eaten by alligators. I think that's the mythology. Maybe. Uh, so they're telling him to confess. And so he's telling the story of his life and about his coming out and also being part of the first inter- school integration movement. And then the second life takes place in the actual afterworld with the character of Anubis. And then the third part takes place in the classroom where Daniel's drag alter ego, Jamama Jones, does, is, taking, is putting up a pageant for the black kids in her class and trying to get them to, you know, find find their voices, figure out, like, what kind of flower they want to be. The flower is a metaphor for the self. And I think that... Uh, I, does that sound up okay? Yes, I yeah. thought it was great. Yeah. Yes. And so, so this is one of those times where I really enjoyed what I was seeing, but I have no idea what the hell is going on. <laughs> I think... That should just be the subtitle for this entire episode, (laughs) because so it applies to so many of the things we saw. Exactly. No, I was completely engaged throughout. Like the actors were fantastic, because in in the first act, there's Daniel, and then there's there's an actor playing the younger version of Daniel. His name's uh, Jacques Gerard Coleman, and he. He's so good. Like his voice is so soothing, and he kind of sounds like Daniel. Kind of looks like Daniel. I'm just like, oh my god, you're twins. It's, it this is great. And it, it's the first part is just this really moving tale that you don't really see very often. I mean, Rob Rob O'Hara, t- d- you know, talks about it a lot in his work about like black queerness and coming out within this community that's not always friendly, and also growing up in the South, which is also not friendly to blacks or uh, black people or to queers. And there's this really fascinating part about Daniel going into the first integrated classroom and and the teacher just, you know, very obviously treats him differently than the other kids in the class. And it's just, I, I usually don't enjoy the confessional mode of theater because I find it very, um, what's, what's that, what's that word? Uh, you, you know the word where, where someone's really full of themselves? It's it's self promoting. Yeah, I usually find it very self promoting. But this, I think, the combination of the iconography, the Egyptian iconography, and the music really, and also Daniel's just general stage presence really kept me engaged throughout. So I, I approached it like I'm I'm at a cabaret concert, where they're just telling you about their lives. It's kind of, it's kind of like Taylor Max concert, where it's really not about like there's an overall theme, but you don't really adhere to the theme. And it's mostly in the deviations where the work is interesting. 
But I really, I'm still trying to figure out what the Egyptian mythology, how that really ties in, and also how the pageantry ties in to it. So what do you guys think? Uh, <clears throat> I'm about to get slightly corny because, uh, you know, like we often listen about coming of age stories and they're usually about white people and white boys specifically. And uh, this play made me realize it was actually very comforting and very moving to realize that people, queer people of color, we share the same anxieties and we share the same dreams and the whole thing, for instance, about the Egyptian mythology, I loved Egypt growing up. And I remember like being obsessed with mummies and being obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra. <laughs> and, uh, the most authentic I, portrayal of Egyptians ever. <laughs> right? And it's, well, I think it's like, it's so fascinating because like straight kids have like their superheroes. And I, I, I find it really cool, for lack of a, you know, like fancier words, that Daniel, his superheroes were. Egyptian gods and then how and he Wonder Woman. Yeah. And then how he links the Egyptian gods. I think that was my favorite part in the show when he talks about pop divas and like Diana Ross and all these amazing people from the seventies about versions of Egyptian gods as if the Egyptian gods took human form and came to protect us. And I I thought that as well. Like I would I mean I didn't go to church, but I would like pray to Madonna. <laughs> And I would dream, you know, that my favorite pop stars would be my teachers. And that's what we see in the, in, the, in the last part of the show. So I don't know. I'm not making much sense. But I just found myself being, I like, felt like he was just like extracting things from my own dreams and from my own memories. And I really was grateful for that. Oh, that's what she is. Okay. I think I get it now. Okay. Sorry. Explain. No, oh, because you're talking about how, no, and it's kind of like Jermama Jones is kind of like an extension of all of these, uh, and all of these black artists that Daniel loves so much, Prince, Diana Ross, um, you know, J Janet Jackson, like just, oh, maybe he didn't mention her, but. I think like, he did. I think yeah. she came up. And, 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 and right, and how like they, like they inspired him, and so he's using this diva-like figure to inspire these kids. Oh, okay, okay. This is good. This is good. Did you have someone who you were obsessed with when you were a uh, kid? Well, I mean, Lea Salonga, but that's all every musical <laughs> theater kid. <laughs> you know, Celine Dion, you know, the, the usual divas. <laughs> and also, I really, and I, I, the last song they sing is about night flowers and like the, and like the, the like they don't, like the flowers that the people who don't really, who, who, who like, are nighttime, are like nighttime people, and they really bloom when like not not so many eyes are on them, and so I really relate to that. Oh, and uh, also Kaniza Shaw is in this, and I've seen I saw her in um, really by Jackie Sibylla's Drury earlier this year, and I just think she's like the most gorgeous, like one of the most gorgeous women I've ever seen. So she was great. Yeah. yeah, and she was wearing a really really ugly outfit. <laughs> <laughs> You still look so beautiful. The <laughs> costumes in the second half, the supporting cast are pretty much all wearing the same fabric, but in slightly different designs right. in the form of sort of suits. It's like a Jackson 5 kind of thing. Yeah. That material was, I mean, where did they, did they make it themselves? Did they I wanted find a suit it? Like it that. was unbelievable. <laughs> it was so colorful and argyle and just so much happening i thought was, i thought their costumes were beautiful they should sell t-shirts oh and before i forget like i keep telling everyone after i see duet like it's such a spiritual companion to moonlight which is out in theaters and i know this is a theater and stage podcast but um i hope i won't be banished uh but no, please tell us yeah it's it's really wonderful it made me think of you know remember about like 12 years ago when all those awful like meteor and comet movies destroying the earth happened by accident and fortunately both duet and moonlight are really great they're not about like bruce willis like going to space but it's such a great moment to be alive really and see that queer people of color are telling their stories in such a gorgeous uh 
soulful way, and everyone should go. I think it's a great idea for a like double bill, like go see Moonlight and then go see to it. Well, actually, there is a theater connection to Moonlight because playwright Terrell Alvin McQueen wrote the screenplay based on one of his plays. Uh, I think it was called um, "In uh, Under the Moon, Black Boys Look Blue" or something like that. Um, Google it. <laughs> but so it's theater e. Cool. All right, let's move on to the loon, Jose. I think something else we're gonna run into in this episode is like using references to describe all the shows. Because yeah. I have no idea uh, if there's a better way to describe this show than it's like this cross between like a Neil deGrasse Tyson special <laughs> and like The Price is Right <laughs> and The Dick Van Dyke Show and like a very modern Broadway musical. And basically what happens is that we have... Uh, Robert M. Johansson of Nature Theater of Oklahoma give this hour-long monologue about time and about space. And it, I have to confess, it was maybe just a little bit too existentialist for it. I went, I went on a Saturday night, and I was like, this is too much for me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted a drink. But, you know, the show, I, I don't... It's not really about anything in a very, like, Seinfeldian way. But it also, since it goes through so many different paths, he's talking about, he's making us memorize answers to questions he'll give later. He's talking about the loon, which, like, yeah, I, I mean, who talks about birds? Uh, he's talking about just, like, how we interact with, machines and cell phones and how audiences interact with people who are on stage he's often defying us to be like why are you allowing me to be on this stage and not like isn't this weird it makes us like hyper aware of the essence i guess of what theater and live performance are it made me think a lot about american psycho the broadway musical because of the choreography I thought was amazing by Dan um, Safer or Safer. Uh, and it's basically a show, they're both shows about male anxiety surrounded by, you know, the modernity and electronica. So let's talk a little bit very specifically about what happens on stage. So you have Robert delivering this hour long monologue, and then you have a group of dancers who engage throughout in a variety of ways um, as a, a group as a whole. Many times there are large groups of eight or so, six to eight dancers, and then there are also solo and duet performances. And then you have projections that are cast onto the back wall. So it's highly multimedia, multidisciplinary, dancing, spoken word, poetry, almost. I mean, his monologue is, as you said, it's very existential and it cuts across you may say nothing or everything. So many topics are addressed, but there's constant action. It's and there's a very heavy, like I said, multimedia element to it with a lot of lighting and different things, images, uh, audio, uh, video um, projected onto the stage. So there's never a dull moment. Mm -mm. And I think I, I believe what the dancers were supposed to represent were the loons. Sometimes. Like sometimes, yeah. yeah, the birds. And it, it kind of made me think of uh, Andrew Schneider's uh, You Are Now Here. And just because for, for that show, you're not supposed to, it's not so much, you're not supposed to listen to him talk the entire time. You're also supposed to be engaged with the projections, with the sound, with the lights and everything. And so for this show, there's sometimes where I wasn't really looking, looking at Robert or even listening to him. I was just watching the dancers. And at one point he says, you're not even listening to me right now, aren't you? I'm like, no, I, I haven't actually been for a while. And I don't really think you want me to. So. I think that raises a really interesting question, which is when you see a show like this, where there's not a plot for you to call, follow or characters for you to be developed how do you absorb it you know what is what is your system or method for attending a show that you 
that you're not directed where to look and what to think and how to respond at each moment of the performance. Mm -hmm. That's a question. And what did you look at? I I similarly found myself kind of flashing between different things, you know, at, at there whole segments. Have you ever driven a car and you're like all of a sudden you're like way you've 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 driven a long distance but you can't actually remember how you got there? It's not that it was dangerous. You didn't fall asleep, but your consciousness like was removed somehow. That's I, I, I get I drunk. That yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure you're never <laughs> drinking and driving deep. Um, <laughs> But I, I had that sensation throughout this performance where I would be immersed into the projections and then I'd be like, oh, he's still talking. What, what did I missed that whole segment and then just, you know, dip in. I found him to be a fantastic narrator. I thought right. he was excellent. Not any, not just anyone could pull this off no. because you have to be just like so dynamic. And so then I would listen to him and then I'd be like, there's all this beautiful dancing happening and I'm not even watching. I'm just staring at him. Like in my mind, I should be able to listen to his words, but also absorb the beauty of the dance. But I actually found that I had, I struggled to do both simultaneously. And so for me, oftentimes when I see a performance, a sort of narrative free performance, um, I get kind of bored. That didn't happen to me here. I was, um, both, intellectually but also emotionally stimulated i found it a pleasant entertaining experience and i think well we were talking about this afterwards and i kind of agree with you now because you you said Lindsay, that it kind of reminded you of a life by Bach, which we'll talk about later in this episode about because there there are some certain segments in in the loon about like middle-aged male existential anxiety, which seems to be a theme in this episode. Well, Daniel's not middle-aged, but, you know, male anxieties in general, because there there are these, like, fantastical, absurdist segments where uh, Robert is in his house, and in the background there's, like, projections of Ikea furniture. Yeah. And his wife and his kid are played by these dancers with, like, giant, like... Paper mache heads. Yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> If you have clown anxiety, (laughs) this would definitely ignite that. And also like this beautiful moment where he sings like a wider shade of pale and he's dancing with this girl. And it's a beautiful moment. I know. And I don't really know what the hell was going on, but I really liked it. Yeah, I saw a snippet of this at Catch, the performance series where people preview works in progress, which I just highly recommend if you feel like you want to sort of get exposure to this world, but you don't want to commit to something that might be 60 minutes of chaos. Um, (laughs) This is like a series of five minute performances by a lot of different artists that happen, I would say, not monthly around the city, but maybe every other month, six times a year. And I... I saw a, a snippet of this, it, it, and it was um, one of the sort of more violent parts of the dance piece. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but there's a part where they kind of hit each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then when we were organizing this podcast and figuring out what we should go see, I think Jose mentioned he was seeing this, and I was like, oh, fantastic. We should definitely see this, because I didn't know what it would be like, but I knew it would be provocative (laughs) how do the loons tie in i don't think even they know (laughs) no it's true because they keep mentioning it and but wasn't that there was like i mean birds are scary i've said this before birds are scary is that what you said i was terrified because while your eyes were going to the dance and the projections my eyes were like fixated on that like loon that they had Yes, that Up, thing was yeah. super creepy. It, it was, was like stuffed stuffed loon. loon. Yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't stop looking at it. And I kept thinking that it would attack us or come to life during the show. And so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe How they were just trying to... feel in the end when a giant one came into the Oh, my God. That was so funny. <laughs> it, I was terrified as well. It was like a, again, like another reference, but it was like a David Lynch movie moment come to life. It was creepy, but amazing. Don't set birds on Jose. <laughs> that would Please be don't. very nice. No, and you did sit through that play, The Birds, right? I did, yeah. Oh and did you survive it okay? Yeah, because I didn't have any birds. But when I see an actual bird, it's like, oh, God. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we should unpack this. <laughs> Maybe in 
another day. An all bird theater episode coming to us in the future. Okay, moving on to Ship of Fools that is presented at here. It is part of their Dream Music Puppetry program, which is a program here does led by Basil Twist, where they fund and encourage the development of theater that combines puppets and music. This is conceived by Jessica Scott and devised by Jessica Scott with Anonymous Ensemble. It is, as indicated, a puppet show. But it has a few interesting twists to it. So I think we should just fully describe it because otherwise why bother talking about it? It's also over, so you I don't think you'll have an opportunity to catch it this time around. But it may be coming to a theater near you, in which case... There will be spoilers here. So you engage, you enter the theater and it all appears to be very typical theater environment. You know, there are rows and seats and you sit on them um, and there's an, an actor on stage and there are some musicians uh, also on stage. And there's an, an, an opening scene that involves, I actually don't even know what it involves. It's not important. Uh, <laughs> but I'll just tell my own experience and then Jose you can tell yours and then after that scene it, I felt like maybe I've never taken LSD but it felt like <laughs> what I imagine LSD to be which is like you know how in olden times like TV screens would suddenly start sort of melting horizontally and it would appear that like part of the screen was moving to the left and part of it was moving to the right and so it sort of felt like that was actually happening in the theater that like the theater was collapsing around me and things were moving shifting in a way that um defied reality um i i literally thought that row in front of me was just moving independent of like space and time and then i realized that what was happening is the entire structure that all the audience seats were on was rotating. That's what was happening. But I didn't realize it instantly. So the fixture that the audience is sitting on rotates 360 degrees. And uh, then there are scenes that take place at other angles in this theater space. And the th there, there's, so there's a series of vignettes, and they all have to do with women and the way women's anxiety and stress get mangled in society and specifically the sort of trope of like the hysterical woman. And it takes various forms from things related to the, a female body and sex and also there are um, projected monologues from high-profile women like Jodie Foster and Marilyn Monroe. There, and it concludes with something that is very clearly related to the Hillary Clinton presidential candidacy. And all the while, you're like rotating, not constantly, but at, inter at intervals around and seeing this performance from just all these different angles in the theater. Um, I actually saw this as a double bill back to back with the loom. <laughs> <laughs> and all I can say is like, at the end of the night, my mind was totally blown. <laughs> it was like, wow, I have seen two performances that like independently would take a lot of time to process and completely defy description. I will try to break it down in some very simple terms. Like the puppetry here is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is really inventive and just really stunning. And the, you know, shout out to the designer of the puppetry, Jessica Scott, and also the puppeteers who are involved in this performance. The musicians do a great job, but it's, it's something of an assault on your senses. I mean, it's pretty, um, it's pretty visceral and it, it actually, and I don't know if this is intentional or just what happened to me, but like I started to feel a little carsick on that thing. And especially there's a moment where rather than smoothly rotating in one direction, it kind of jerks one direction and then back the other. And then at the same time, there's kind of a flashing light and a projection that's somewhat blinking. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm the old lady who's feeling sick now. And it took me a little bit of time to recover from that. 
and it added to the sort of, you know, it added to, I mean, I don't know, negative or ultimately positively, but it definitely affected my experience at the show. What about you, Jose? The show, at first, when the things started moving and I thought, like, there was an earthquake going on, um, <laughs> yeah, I was terrified for, for a few minutes. But once I realized everything was fine, but it reminded me the most was the first time when I was a kid, I went to Disneyland and I went on the uh, It's a Small World ride. Yeah. But rather than having, you know, like, politically incorrect, like culturally inappropriate puppets singing about, you know, how everyone's like the same. We're seeing actually like eliminating, often infuriating things about how we treat women. I felt like a very angry, like eight year old by the end of the show. And I wanted to like go and like, I don't know, like cause a, a society, like a revolution or whatever. I felt that that was like one of those shows that I was so thankful because they had a and a right after. And it was one of those shows that I felt that I need to know what people think about it because I don't know what's going on. And it was so interesting to hear, particularly with the Hillary Clinton um, vignette, how the younger people, especially younger men, would raise their hands. And when the directors told them how they felt about the Hillary puppet, all the men said they felt she was oppressive or shrill, or scary. And then there was an older woman sitting on in the front row, and she turned back to them, and she started talking about how she had actually once had to be in a revolution and fight for her rights. And then she said something that I feel like Hillary should make her slogan. And she said, I feel that now that we have Hillary, we should do everything we can to try to keep her. And I wanted to like give this woman uh, an award, uh, because also another moment in the show that I that really affected me was when we see uh, one of the actresses doing this collage of various. I'm a huge awards shows junkie, by the way. So this woman doing a huge collage of several high profile speeches from like the Golden Globes and just like random interviews and. There, there comes a moment when all of them, I mean, I knew so I'm a huge like speech nerd. So there was a moment when some of them, even I started doubting, like, wait, did she say that? Or did she say that? But because they weave them so seamlessly, they become this one. Yeah, this yeah, like one really long monologue. Yeah. And and it was, I guess, what the, I don't even know if this was on purpose or not. But the, the monologue starts with Jodie Foster talking about. Uh, when she received her uh, Cecil B. the Mill Award at the Golden Globes, and she was talking about her career, and everyone the next day was like complaining because she hadn't quote unquote come out, or because she hadn't done exactly what they wanted to, and I find it really moving that they start that that section with Jodie Foster and it ends with uh, Lindsay Lohan, and I I thought it was beautiful in a very twisted way that they both played the daughter in Freaky Friday. And by having both Jodie Foster and Lindsay Lohan, you know, like who play the same character at one point, being the bookend, it challenged me to ask, have we really changed at all? Have we advanced much? And yeah, like when I when I when the show ended, I just wanted to go like, I don't know, like vote, I guess, or like do something <laughs> good. And like kick those people who called Hillary shrill and scary. <laughs> It does take quite a turn when they move to the Hillary section. Mm. Like all of a sudden, it becomes very concrete and present. Wait, so they had puppets of all of these female celebrities? No, they had uh, the main act. Like in this case, because they like they they resort to puppetry in ways that I had never seen before. So in this case, the puppet was the podium, and the podium, like the microphone, kept moving when she was trying to talk, and it was, I. I I'm assuming there was someone in that podium. Yes, she appears at one point at the end. I don't know if you remember. I don't remember that. But no, so they had like this really huge projections of half the women's faces behind the actress. Yeah. And then there was a person standing at the podium. I don't know if she was actually saying or lip syncing. I can't remember, but I think she was actually saying the speeches. Right. Yeah, I don't think they were projecting the voices. And she was dressed in this like fairy tale like gown. It was very disturbing. Like it made me reevaluate my love for award shows as well. Well, as Taylor Max says, they're the great American tchotchkes. <laughs> what are? 
uh, oh, the, the Oscars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought you meant the actresses. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. From the world of oppressing women to poor middle-aged men and their midlife crises. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> A life. <laughs> Well, (laughs) (laughs) oh, Jesus, sorry. (laughs) That was amazing. No, keep it in there. Keep it in there. Okay, so A Life, the newest play by Adam Bach at Playwrights Horizons. This play hasn't opened yet, and it's already gotten extended because David Hyde Pierce is in the main role. So it'll be easier for me to just break it down by the um, format. Uh, it starts with David Hyde Pierce coming in, and he and he has a monologue to the audience. A thirty-minute monologue. Yep. About direct in, address. Sorry. I'll yes. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> about how you know he's in midlife. He may have commitment issues. His boyfriend broke up with him, and he and he's really into astrology and figuring out like why he is the way that he is. And then he ends it by saying, "I really need to make a change in my life." And then he dies of a heart attack. And there's this, I think this may be one of the best parts in the show, where it's just like these two scenes where nothing's happening. He's just sitting there, slumped over dead. And you hear the sounds from the, outs- from the outside of his apartment and people walking around. And then his phone just keeps ringing. And, and then his friend, one of his best friends finally opens a door and finds him there. And the next scene, my other favorite scene in the show, is him at the morgue. And they're just, these two morticians are just cleaning up his body, shaving him, clipping his toenails. So gross. (laughs) But also really fascinating. So I have a fascination with the funeral industrial complex. (laughs) Oh my God. And just like, yeah, the, 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 the things that we they do to prep the body for burial to make it look like not like a dead person, even though it is a dead person, it's just weird. Like, we just have a, a, we just have a really horrible relationship to death in this country. Anyhow, monologue for another day. <laughs> and then the last one, and, the, and then the next scene is his funeral, his friends and family talking, saying really nice things about him. And the last scene, which is really unsatisfying because it's a, another direct address to the audience from beyond the grave, which I don't really enjoy because it, then it makes it look like, oh, there is a life after death. And so you feel hopeful. The, you as the audience feel, feels hopeful that he will be okay because, you know, he's still, his consciousness is still alive somewhere. Where I don't like that because it makes, because it doesn't, because then you, you, you get an out yeah, as the it audience. it undoes all the work the play did. Mm. Exactly. And the whole point of being scared of death is you don't know what happens after. And so if, there, if this dead guy is talking to you saying, oh, I, I can hear the sound of the trees and people walking away. It's so nice. I'm just like, you just think, okay, then what's the point of fearing death if, if there's something after? So, I, th- I mean, I'm, I'm fine with the play. It's, it's not the most compelling, sur- it's not the most compelling way to examine death and what happens when someone dies. I, I think I would have appreciated just seeing a play about the two morticians and the people that come <laughs> in and out <laughs> and how they prep bodies. That would have been a fascinating play. And... I and it kind of did tap into my fear, one of my New York fears of living alone and then die and then dying and then no one's and no one knows I'm dead until like a week later and the smell just like drifts into the hallway. So and that's why I still have roommates. <laughs> <laughs> but I just think there's just a better platform for this than a white middle-aged man. I mean, granted, he's gay, so so you kind of get that little slant into it, but how many stories do you see about white middle-aged men with commitment issues fearing death? It, the, the middle of it was so compelling that I feel like the beginning and the end really moved the, the show from, like, a B to me to, like, you know, maybe, like, an average play. It's interesting. There's definitely a death theme going on this theater season, starting also at Playwrights Horizons with Aubergine. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
than the civilians undertaking this reminded me of as well. It's such an interesting topic to explore. It's a universally shared anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are, are many more interesting things to be said on the topic. But this play just said the most obvious. Exactly. It didn't say anything new or compelling or interesting. It just was, this guy lived an average life, like all of us, right, sitting in the audience contemplating our New York City existences. And he died. And I did really actually also love that scene where he, he slumped over dead. And, you know... Life he, goes on, yeah. Like time passes, and it, I, credit to the whoever it was that decided what duration of time should pass because it's extensive. It goes, you know, due to lighting changes, you know that a couple of days are passing. And I, I also have, I, I live alone and share that anxiety. I often think, like, if I start choking, I'll just die. And then, well, how many days will pass before somebody realizes I'm gone? It could be like a long time because I don't go to an office every day. You know, people could just think I'm being like a bad worker email responder. So I thought that was really interesting. But then in the end, it's just like, here's the most typical way in which we prepare a body post-death and the way we deal with bodies, which is to bury them in the ground. And the things said about you after your death are banile, and it feeds into the whole sort of, is there any point in living? Which, again, I think these are interesting questions to ponder. I just didn't think this play had any interesting answers to give. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And if you put this on a scale of sort of like we, the people in our existential crises and how to portray them on stage going from the most curious and weird to the most basic and traditional in terms of theater performance I would put the loon on one end and a life on the other end as the polar ends of the spectrum exploring this issue not 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 in any that I'm actually the thing I'm saying right now isn't actually a judgment I'm just saying that I think these two plays explore something similar, but they take completely different opposite tacks. And so it was interesting to see them uh, together and discuss them together. Yeah. I feel like that there could have been like a deeper play here, like just taking the scenes of preparation and, fu and funeral just to explore like like our like the American culture's anxiety about death and how we don't like to face it. And when we do, we don't know what to do because no one ever tells you how to prep by for burial or like what happens when, you know, someone you know dies and all the paper paperwork you have to fill out. Like that was fascinating. Like those conversations were like I've never really I've never been privy to those conversations because I don't know anyone my parents are still alive. Knock on wood. So there, there are all these things revolving around death and the ritual that we do in society around it that could have been a really fascinating way to go into this topic rather than just the very typical way that they did. And actually, this play actually reminded me of that New York Times article about uh, what happens when you die and you don't really have any family or not mm -hmm. very or not very many close friends and like the, the way the the ways the city and the state will how they'll they'll find like who to contact and if they can't contact anybody they'll just you know give you an impromptu funeral and then just put you in an, put you in like a on an island with other people who didn't have people who love them so which is close to the public so if you do know someone who's buried there you can't visit it i heard of a story about this even more recently than that new york times article on npr i guess they're trying or considering opening up the island so people can visit their deceased loved ones so, it's a really fascinating topic. I just wish it was a better play. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Uh, tick, tick, boom. Before going into tick, tick, boom, I have to say that I've, I always tell my friends, if, if I haven't tweeted in 36 hours, check on me. So maybe we all should come up with like, yeah. Yeah. Lindsay, drop me a text to like text you every day. Make sure you're still alive. He's still living. I also have Have you choked yet? Well, I have the reverse anxiety also, which is that a friend of mine will die and I won't know about it. And then I'll try to contact them and not be able to reach them, but just reach out to like a, friend, a mutual friend or family member mm. and be told like, oh, they died like years ago. 
I'm got years. I know. It's like sometimes my boyfriend doesn't text me for a really long time, and I just like, oh my god, is he dead? Big, yeah. Yeah. That's well, continuing with the topic <laughs> of death, um, Tick Tick Boom is Jonathan Larson's hugely like autobiographical musical about a composer called Jonathan who's really worried about. He's about to turn thirty, and he he doesn't have anything to prove, anything to show for it. Uh, his one of his closest friends has he was an actor and he took a job in advertising so now he has a fancy apartment and a car and he wears a tie to work every day and he's trying to get Jonathan to move into a corporate world but he refuses and he wants to be an artist and we see him developing uh, a workshop for a musical and uh, just going nowhere and like being afraid that it would that it'll be a flop uh, the other character in the show, the other main character, is his girlfriend. And basically it's how Jonathan interacts with uh, th- these two people. Uh, the actor who plays Jonathan is called Nick Blamer. And uh, he's really fantastic. He kind of looks like Jonathan Larson, which is really creepy. Uh, and then the other actors are George Salazar and Ciara Renee, who play a- an assortment of characters. What I found really moving, I mean, anyone who's like a huge rent head probably knows Tick, Tick, Boom, like inside out. I am not really a rent head, but I, and I find Tick, Tick, Boom more appealing to me because it's about fears that I feel right now as well about, you know, like not going anywhere with my life, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what I, what I found really, really sad about that show, and it's the one thing that I've been thinking about since I saw it, was that, well, first of all, it's a really good musical. It's It, it gets the work done, the songs are catchy, the melodies are really good, um, and the production is really good as well. But Jonathan Larson died so young, and he was he was writing really good art about death and about being afraid of dying, and, and then he suddenly died unexpectedly. And that, I guess that's my version of... Uh, listening to the music was my version of like, oh my God, I'm going to choke and like a cat's going to eat my face. <laughs> you want me to call you too? Please. <laughs> <laughs> we need a phone tree. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel that the Keen Company is doing such an amazing job in bringing musicals, off-Broadway musicals back. They're doing like really great revivals. The revival of John and Jen last year was fantastic. And I thought this production was really Really, really well done. Deep. Uh, I actually agree with you. I do prefer this to Rent because, like you, I I love the music on Rent. I don't like the message on Rent, which is you know selling like getting a grown up job is selling out, and you can't be an artist and get a grown up job. Like that, that's ridiculous. We both know that's not true because theater does not pay anybody. <laughs> And so I, I and also rent may trend. It's like rent is like a bigger work, and that it tries to like make like give you a message about a, a generation of people. Well, in this one, I appreciate it because it was just one story about one person trying to navigate like this very hard thing, which is to become a musical theater artist. And actually, I was looking it up on Wikipedia afterwards, and this was really odd. By this show was super autobiographical because he did write a, Jonathan Larson did write a musical called. Superbia, and it and it just went to workshop. It didn't it didn't really get a production, and then and then that's what led to Rent. So that was interesting. I've actually never seen it. I didn't see the City Center revival last a couple of years ago with Lin Manuel Miranda, but I thought it was yeah. I thought it was a good production. Uh, some some of the diction could be better because sometimes people are singing and I can't really tell what it is they're saying. <laughs> Which is super annoying when it's like a ninety seat house, and it was it's very it was a very physical production because the characters like I mean the three actors need to like move pianos and chairs and all that and props and things like that so you like they're working and they're sweating and you can see it and I just loved seeing their reactions while one character is like on stage and the other two characters are back are are like sitting in the back next to a band, but you can still see their reactions to the music and them laughing. So it kind of gave it a feel of, you know, just a bunch of friends putting on a workshop of a musical. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't really have much to say about it really. Cause I feel like this 
then this musical's just been done to death at this point. But I will say that some of the blocking is well, some of the furniture around the block, the blocking around the furniture is a little bit cumbersome. Like, um, come to your senses. Like, she starts on the table and then she goes behind the table, which is like a giant table, like a giant like round table and it's kind of blocking her from view and then she comes to the front i'm just thinking i feel like we, we could have uh, blocked that song better to really crescendo it up and make it easier for the actor as well so i don't know i mean i have i have no opinions it's fine it's fine i have something really shallow to add and is it's that if you get tickets try to get a ticket on the left because i was sitting on the right and i was really distracted because like the music director is really cute and I kept, <laughs> and I kept hoping he would like, and he was like having so much fun. And I kept hoping he would play the like the lead character. No offense to the lead actor because he was really fantastic. But yeah, just sit on the left. Okay, our final show, Viet Gone, by Queen Win, at Manhattan Theater Co- Club. We previewed this show. Jack did such a wonderful job in our October preview. It is highly anticipated. We've tweeted about it a ton. And I can say, all the hype is worth it. It's so wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) So to uh, summarize, it is a story, a play, about Kui's parents and how they met at a refugee camp in Arkansas. They had fled Vietnam in the context of the war and come over here. And they have this really great love story that he dramatized in this play. And this play is such a remarkable combination of things that you very rarely see combined in the theater in that it is very lively, it is very personal, it is very political, it is very funny, it is very sad. It recasts the entirety of the Vietnam War in your mind, and it manages to do all these things while being incredibly entertaining. It's so smart. So just a little bit of background on Kui. We've talked about plays by him before. He is one of the co-founders of the Vampire Cowboys and often combines a lot of stage combat, superheroes, comic book style tropes into his plays. And that is true here as well. There's some great stage combat. The design of the production incorporates a lot of artwork that you would typically see in a graphic novel. It's just so lovely and so well done. And the performances, let's just, there are five actors, let's name them all because they're all fantastic. John Hoach, Jennifer Akita, Raymond Lee, Samantha Kwan, and Paco Tolson. They are all great. Now, we have Deep here who interviewed Kui and wrote about him in the New York Times, and you've seen this production across the globe. Well, at least across the United <laughs> States. Multiple times. So what, what insights can you give us? Right. Okay, so I haven't seen the Manhattan Theater Club production. I'm seeing it on Tuesday, opening night. Okay, so I originally saw this play last year at a reading at South Coast Rep. Jack talked about it. It was a reading where everyone just got up, got up to their feet afterwards because they were, they were so moved. And then I saw the South Coast Rep production, which has the same cast as a Manhattan Theater Club production, save for one, uh, the lead actress. Uh, Jenny Akeda is coming in from New York to do this because the actor in California could not make it. And then I've see, I recently saw it at Oregon Shakespeare Festival with a completely different cast, and that production's moving up to Seattle. So I know a lot about this play, because Queen and I have <laughs> talked about this play, I think, three times officially, and just and a lot over text. So if I ever wrote a book about a theater artist, I'd write a book about him. <laughs> okay, so the contact... So... Oh my God, I have so many things to say. Uh, let's see. So, okay. So the way the play is structured, it's written, it's very, it's kind of like Hamilton. That it's really modern. Everyone speaks like a very modern dialect. There's a lot of hip hop. There's a lot of rapping. And, and then at the very end, so it's all very, it's all very um, stylized. And then at the very end, it pulls, 
it fast forward to modern day Quy Nguyen sitting down with his dad to ask him about the Vietnam War. And then it becomes a really realistic conversation about a father and his son. And the thing is, the scene won't doesn't work as well if everything before it hadn't been written the exact the way that it had been written. Because it shows you that all of this, it, the way Kui wrote it is how he imagined it in his head and how like he wanted, like the stories that he wanted to see growing up. And how like these events are in, were in the past, but they're also happening right now with the current refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. And in, in, in this conversation at the end between Kui and his dad, played by Paul Coltolson, uh, Paul Coltolson plays Kui, Raymond Lee plays Kui's dad. Uh, there, Quay's talking about how the Vietnam War is seen as the biggest failure in American military history. And then Quay's dad says, yes, mistakes were made, but these men also saved our, these men, I fought beside them, and they also saved my life. And, and also, it's, it wasn't a political choice for the South Vietnamese to not be in the war. When, when someone is trying to invade your country and take away your, your way of life, you fight. And so that, so that is a side you don't ever hear about. You never hear it. And the thing is, because, you know, I'm Vietnamese and my dad fought and fought in the war. He, we were on the South Vietnamese side. And then after, like, he was put in jail for six years because he fought in the war. And then that's how my family came over. Okay, fun, fun things about that. But the way that my dad always told me, told me about the war was what Quay dad said, which was like, they saved us. It was, it was heroic and also really tragic that we lost, but that's what happened. But then I, go, I start going to school and I start hearing about the war from a very, the American perspective and start hearing about it as a mistake and start hearing about it as, you know, American soldiers killing Vietnamese babies. And then you think, wait, that's not what... It's like what the outside culture tells you isn't the same as what you've personally experienced. And so I feel like I've been waiting for this play for a very long time and I've never and I never realized it until I saw it because like even Miss Saigon and even movies like Platoon and Rambo, like they don't they only the only way they paint Vietnamese people are as people for Americans to shoot at or for Americans to save. And for this play in particular, like it, it's, just, it's just so important to me. And the reason I love it so much is because like it finally paints us as the heroes in our own stories and paints us as active participants in this war that our li- where our lives and, and, and our way of life, our livelihood, like everything we worked hard for, like, it, like we were finally portrayed as, as like people that actually mattered. And that's what the, what the point is. Of, I feel like the Vietnam is, uh, I feel like the point of, the, of this work is to show you that two like completely contradictory ideas can exist, can exist simultaneously. Like yes, the Vietnam War was a military mistake on the part of Americans and yes, horrible things happened. But at the same time, a lot of people were saved during it. And, and it, like my family would not be here if not for that, American, America's involvement in the war. So good things can also come out of it. So it's just, it's just a really great way of reminding you, reminding you to really like not adhere to binary thinking and to really think and to really research and to not think that just because one one side is being portrayed to you doesn't mean like there's also not another side. And also, as Lindsay said, it's entertaining as hell. <laughs> well, and also the importance of hearing from all the different perspectives that are involved in a given situation. We have only heard from one side of that conflict for so long and it if this applies not just to that situation but to so many and to all the plays that we see on stage which is that when we just have such a homogenous group of people creating theater 
we're never going to get to that fuller, richer, more accurate understanding of whatever the thing is that we're examining. Exactly. And also, like, I, I mean, I talked a lot about diversity in the theater because, and I didn't really, I couldn't really figure out, like, why I was doing it, I was doing it, why it was important to me, until I saw this play, and then I realized, oh my god, like, I don't need to place myself into anyone's shoes. I don't need to pretend that I'm a white man, or I'm a rich white woman, or, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, woman, I, I'm a woman living in Africa. I don't need to pretend to be anything else. Like, this is my family story, and, it, and he just basically placed it on stage, and it was really satisfying to finally see something that you can you relate to, yes, but also like hits you so deeply because that is your story. And the thing is, like, I have never had that in the theater, and I've almost and and not even moved. Well, actually, I grew up in a really Vietnamese environment, so there were a lot of Vietnamese language movies, so that kind of helped a lot. But like, just like in any American cultural thing, like I've never felt that, and I felt it in this play, and I realized, oh my God, white people get to feel like this all the time in the theater. Like it's unfair. Like the rest of us should be able to hear our own stories on stage and to be validated. And so that is why I talk about diversity because white people should should be required to place, to like actively place themselves in other people's shoes. So now that's my rant about that. <laughs> But, you know, produce more artists of color and more varied stories than people arguing in living rooms. Here, here. The good news is that this is one of five plays Kui's planning to write about his family. So the second play has already been commissioned, and hopefully he's hard at work on that. I cannot wait to see how the story develops. I just think this is a beautiful piece, and it definitely left me wanting more, so I was very pleased deep when I read your article and learned that fact. No problem. I know, I know what the next plays are going to be about. So just ask me offline. <laughs> well, I think you wrote about it, and I think you wrote about his parents and how their relationship developed in Arkansas, the early years, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the ne the next plays are going to be about like them living in Arkansas, but also like like Quee has a um, a cousin who he had, who his parents adopted as his brother because his cousin was a boat person so his his parents died in Vietnam and they he was placed on a boat and uh, horrible things happened there. So oh, there's wow. that and you know it's really dramatic but the thing is it's also really true because post like post war the Vietnamese refugee experience like I have those similar stories in my family just in my immediate family of just like the five of us and it is really shitty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, I'm I'm happy to see that on stage and have more people understand like what it is that happened. Definitely. Okay, well let's briefly visit the things that we're seeing that are coming up. Anything on your agendas? I'm seeing Sweat by Lynn Nottage at the public theater. And I've never seen a Lynn Nottage play because she has not been produced in New York ever since I moved here five years ago. So I'm very excited. Uh, Charles Isherwood gave it a review in the Times when it ran at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And it's about uh, this industrial town in Reading, Pennsylvania, and what's happened to it since the main industry in it left. And uh, just about like economic stagnation in America, which is a very relevant issue right now, considering all the people who are voting for Donald Trump are people who are experiencing that those forms of stagnation who haven't been served by our government. So I'm really excited about it. Anything, Jose? Yeah, I think the most the thing that I'm most excited about, well, obviously now Viet Gone, which I'm seeing next Sunday, I can't wait. Uh, and also the, the other thing I'm really excited about is as part of the Crossing the Line Festival, French choreographer Jerome Bell is getting like a tiny like portrait. Like they're doing some of his m most well-known pieces in the States. And it's gonna. One of them is gonna be the, uh, the New York premiere of a piece that was very controversial when it first debuted like 20 years ago, called Jerome Bell. But the one that I'm really excited about is something that he that MoMA commissioned. And what he's doing is that he created the MoMA Dance Company, and its MoMA employees will be performing. Oh wow! Yeah. So that's gonna be from uh, October 27th to the 30th at 12:30 and at 3 p.m. They don't even know what they're doing. They're rehearsing, but they're going to do be doing a dance performance on the uh, museum's atrium. So I can't wait to go see that. It sounds insane. Like I interviewed Jerome, and he was like, "I I don't know what we're doing." <laughs> so that sounds awesome. 
That does sound cool. Uh, after this week, we're taking a week off because I'm traveling. And then we'll be back on November 9th with our preview of the end of the year. Basically, we're doing a combined November-December preview for the rest of the year. So see you then. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear them. You can find us on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Deep is at Deep Thought. Jose is at Jose Solis Mayen. And I'm at Lindsay Barons. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're off next week, and we'll be back in two weeks with our final preview of the year, covering November and December 2016. See you then. Theatrical Media.